Beloved, go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 1, to this very familiar story uh, of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look this morning in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And I want our hearts to be, you know, as Aaron was praying, like my prayer is right there with him. Like I want our hearts to be freshly affected by these words because they are so familiar to us. And if we've been in church for any length of time, most likely we've heard a sermon from this text. If you've been here for the last 18 years, you've heard a couple of them. Probably four, something like that. I don't know. But let's stand together and let's read this morning, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. And again, reading through verse 25. This is the word of the living God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus. Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, those words that we've just read... No matter how many times we read them, ought to evoke in our hearts great wonder, great amazement, great awe. Lord God, at what is being said here, at what is being communicated here. Lord, we read these words and we see the gospel in shorthand displayed before us. And Lord God, we we recognize that All of this is a work of your hand and by your power and according to your will and according to your prophetic purpose. Like we realize, Lord God, that there is more to all of this. This incarnation of your son, the redemption that is in Christ, there is more to this than we can possibly fathom on our own. And so we need desperately from you, Lord God, your presence with us. We need you to come and to be our teacher, Holy Spirit, to come and to instruct our souls. We need you to come and to fill us. We need you to come and instruct us. I need your unction to preach these words. And and this congregation needs your intervention to fully understand them. 
I pray that as we come to this word this morning, we would seek to be amazed and not come as those who, oh, we know this. This is happenstance. This is commonplace. We're all aware. But rather, Lord God, that our hearts would be moved to worship and to adore you. To adore you, Lord Jesus, for all that you are and all that you've done. So come and and just be in our presence. Instruct us, teach us, train us, amaze us, I pray. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. So the question, of course, is why this text this morning? Why'd you pick this one, preacher? Here's why. There are a lot of reasons that I picked this text, and, and we'll mention some of them as we go along. But the main one is this. The main reason I chose this text is because of the names of our Lord that are emphasized here. It's because of the names of our Lord that are emphasized here. Jesus, right? His personal name, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And his prophetic title, Emmanuel, God with us, right? A personal name and a prophetic title that form the basis, really, for everything that we believe. For everything that we believe. For all of our hope and all of our joy, Jesus, our Emmanuel. So here's what we're going to do this morning. As we look at this text, I want us just to begin by doing an overview of of the whole thing. We're just going to read through this text, and I'm going to make some comments as we go, like I might do with my own family, you know, in the living room. We're just going to kind of walk through this text and look at it, and then I want to spend some special time thinking about this name, Jesus, and this prophetic title, Emmanuel, okay? So, so let's do this. Let's go back to verse 18 and, and, and let's read verses 18 and 19 together again. Look at what it says. Matthew writes, now the birth of, of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, that is before they consummated their union and, and, and their marriage was complete, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What's amazing to me is that Matthew uses such an economy of words to describe something so astonishing, doesn't he? I mean, this isn't much. This is, these aren't much, many words that are devoted to describing the, the, the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very short, and it's very to the point. And as he explains the origin of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the way in which he came into the world, I want you to notice that the first thing he tells us here is that his mother Mary was betrothed to a man named Joseph. In other words, here's a word to see right away. The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't happen in a vacuum. The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't just happen in a vacuum. And it's not independent of human involvement and of human lives. Instead, here's the truth. Christ coming into this world absolutely turns Mary and Joseph's world upside down. Turns it upside down. Christ invades their lives. And he doesn't ask permission. He invades their lives. Think about this. Betrothal, beloved, you know, we, we liken it to engagement in our, in our age, but those two things are very different from one another. Like, you can break an engagement, no big deal. You couldn't do that with a betrothal. 
In Jewish times, this, this idea of being betrothed, it was this. It was a serious and awaiting thing. It was almost like being married, right? Like marriage light. The only way that you could break, you know, a betrothal was either through divorce or death. That's how serious this was. What had happened was the, the marriage contract between Joseph and Mary's family had been finalized and signed. The, the dowry price had been paid to have Mary, you know, Joseph, for Joseph to have Mary as his wife. And now here they were amid this year long waiting period to prove Mary's sexual purity. How ironic, right? They're in this period of time to prove Mary's sexual purity. And then when that was over, there would be this grand processional. Joseph would go get Mary from her family home. He would, you know, march her back to the house that he had made for them. And there they would live as husband and wife. And they would physically consummate their marriage. And, and all of that, right? This great, wonderful plan. All of it is instantly derailed. Derailed. You can imagine the shock, can't you? Try to imagine the shock of Joseph. Try to imagine this. The sorrow, the shock that Mary was pregnant and it's not his kid. We need to kind of scrub from our minds the, 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 the fairy tale version of the conception and the birth of Jesus and, and, and the life of Joseph and Mary. Listen, this wasn't a Hallmark movie. You know, Hallmark movies all have the same plot. You ever notice that? They all do. Here's the plot of every single Hallmark movie. A girl grows up in a small town, moves off to the big city, gets rich, gets disillusioned, comes back to the small town, finds the guy that she used to like way back when in the small town, but he was just a little too hick for her, right? But now here he is and he works at a, I don't know, he works at a Christmas tree farm and he cuts down Christmas trees for everybody every year, Right? And she falls in love all over again. And she decides that she's going to stay in the old hometown, even though he doesn't have two pennies to, to pinch together, right? And the, what do you know? The great reveal. He's actually a billionaire. And she doesn't have to give up anything, right? Those stories are garbage. They're not real. Those things don't happen. This was not an easy thing for Joseph. Not an easy thing for Mary. Joseph is stunned. He is troubled that the woman that he was to marry has, from his perspective, been unfaithful. She's proven to be sexually impure in his eyes. She's sinned against him. She's sinned against God. The marriage is off, man. Why? Because he's a just man. Because he's a just man. And what that means is he's a man of faith. He's a man who's concerned for God's law and for the righteousness that it demands, right? But he's also a merciful man. And I say that because though his heart is broken, Joseph's not considering how to carry out his vengeance. He's not harsh and ruthless. He loves Mary. And though the law would have allowed him to pursue the death penalty, his desire is not even to publicly shame her. 
He's satisfied to just divorce her quietly. Without any humiliation publicly. And that's how it would have ended. That would have been the end of it. Except for an angelic intervention. Matthew records for us what happens next. Look at it. Verses 20 and 21. But as he considered these things. Behold. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Joseph's debating these things in his heart. He's thinking about it, right? And as he is rolling this all around in his mind, the angel of the Lord appears to him. And he brings with him a distinct and a mind-blowing message. Clear insight into the identity of this person that is inhabiting his betrothed wife's womb. He's the Son of God, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be his father. You're going to be his dad. You're going to take care of him. You're going to raise him. In fact, you are going to name him Jesus. You're going to adopt him as your own. You're going to adopt him as your own. It's remarkable that, you know, this is so different from the sordid stories, the sleazy stories of of the pagans in which gods come down to earth and lie with women. In contrast, the truth is elegant and it's graceful and it's simple, isn't it? The Holy Spirit, by His divine creative power, just overshadowed Mary and caused her to be with child, the child of God. And you name Him as your own. Why does that matter? A couple reasons. One is, Though his bloodline, Christ's human bloodline through Mary is from the family of David. That bloodline is not the throne bloodline. That qualifies him as the king of the Jews. That has to come through legally through Joseph. And so when Joseph adopts him as his son, he is now Jesus in the legal royal bloodline of David. But I think there's something else here that's important for us to see. I have heard preachers deliberately misrepresent the truth of Christ's home. They will say that he was born to a single unwed mother. And so Jesus gets us. Because we have two, any of us. That couldn't be further from the truth. That's not what happens here at all. She's not unwed. She's married. And you know what? What this shows us is that the Lord honors the family. 
because he has his son to be born into a home with a husband and a father. God honors the nuclear family. He created it. And when he brought his son into this earth, he brought him into a family. Now, when you think about it, it is impossible for us to put ourselves in the position of Joseph, isn't it? Isn't it? There's no amount of human imagination that he can even begin to comprehend the position that he's in. He's betrothed to Mary, right? He finds out she's pregnant. He's not the father. The shock's immeasurable, but even more astonishing and bewildering then is this intervention of an angel. Like he's not seeing that coming, right? And then the realization of the child's paternity, that he's the son of God conceived by the Holy Spirit. How do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of that, right? Especially in a moment. Like, think about this. Don't discount the faith and the maturity of Joseph here. He is a, he is a mature man of faith here. He really is. His faith is real. His life has been entirely turned upside down by the sovereign invasion of God and whatever plans or expectations he had of marriage and of a life with Mary, man, they were transformed in an instant. And there's no warning, there's no indication that any of this is coming. And here he is being told by an angel, you're going to marry her and you're going to name this child and he's going to be your own. He could not have possibly had, Joseph, any capacity to understand what that was going to involve. The most dawning thing would be to be the human father to the son of God. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that would be like? Could you imagine, you know... Having God the Son under your own roof? Like in reality, not kids that think they're the offspring of God, but like the real Son of God. Can you imagine? I want to talk about watching what you say. Watching what you do. But even more than that, how do you comprehend this sacred trust that's been given to you? How do you understand, even begin to comprehend the danger and the difficulty that this would bring? The loss of respect. The loss of respect in a society unlike our own that took sexual purity and personal honor very seriously. The reproach that fell on Mary, you know, would fall upon him as well. The reproaches that, that fell on Christ. Do you remember what they were? Oh, you're born of sexual immorality. They would have fallen on Joseph first. Imagine what it was like to be him and, and how he would have had to defend Mary and Jesus and how foolish he would have sounded to an unbelieving community. Think about that. Think about that. 
I mean, it would be very similar to what our own culture would think. Imagine, imagine if your son was engaged to be married to a young woman and she ends up pregnant and your son says, well, mom, dad, don't worry about it. That's the child of the Holy Spirit in her womb. That doesn't happen twice, son. You'd think, what a poor deluded soul, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? It's overwhelming. And yet, the message to Joseph is clear. Look, it's going to cost you your reputation. It's going to be challenging. And it's going to require hardships yet unknown to care for the Son of God. But don't shrink back from this calling because this is the calling that God has for you. This is the calling that God has given to you. That child that Mary is carrying in her womb is none other than the Son of God. He's the promised Messiah. He's the one who will save his people from their sins. You fulfill your calling as his father. You do it. And make no mistake, beloved, this this calling on Joseph's life is difficult. And it's costly, right? It's difficult and it's costly. And faithful discipleship, listen to me, always is. And that's one of the first lessons of this text. Faithful discipleship to the Lord always costs something. It's not easy. It's not just, you know, tiptoeing through the tulips with Tiny Tim. It's not like that. True discipleship requires costly obedience. Look, this wasn't the life that Joseph had planned, but it was the life for which he'd been created. It was the life for which he, you know, had been made by God and he was obedient to that calling. His calling wasn't to be famous. His calling wasn't to be, you know, well-known. His calling wasn't to be well-esteemed. His calling wasn't to be beloved of all. His calling wasn't to be, you know, social glory guy, right? His calling wasn't any of those things like so many callings today seem to be. His calling was sacrifice, selfless sacrifice, faithfulness, obedience, caring for the Son of God. And he was obedient. He was obedient. In fact, Matthew describes his response very succinctly in verses 24 and 25. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He knew her not. Until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. No fanfare. No swelling words. No, no picture of Joseph going to Mary and saying, Mary, highly favored of the Lord. How blessed you are to have me. Because I've chosen to stand right there with you in the great difficult calling that you have. May my name be well known among all. Not that at all. This guy's the forgotten man of Christmas, if we're honest. He lays down his life right there. Why? Why? What is at the heart of such a response of faith? Why is he willing to do this? Well, we could say a lot of things. The Spirit of God had worked in his heart and so made him willing to do so. Yes. He was chosen by God and God's choice, God's callings are are, are without revocation. True. 
But in the moment, I think, my personal opinion, that in the moment, what made Joseph obedient was the meaning of the two names that are given to this child. One, the name that the angel announced to Joseph and then explained, right, his personal name, Jesus. And I love the fact that the angel says, you name him Jesus and let me exegete the reason why. Right? And we'll look at that in a second. And then second, this prophetic title that Matthew mentions that identifies this child, right, as Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right? He, he, he quotes Isaiah, Matthew does, saying, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Matthew draws this line, right? Connecting the prophecy of Isaiah to the incarnation of Christ. The question is, did Joseph understand the significance of this prophecy being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus? We don't really have any way of knowing, but I want you to think about it like this. If you're a just man, which means you go to synagogue, you go to worship, you hear the word of God preached, you're a guy who knows the word of God. That's what it means, you know, the idea, connotation of being a just man. If you're a just man and you were told that the child, by an angel, that the child that your wife is carrying is none other than the son of God, would you not seek the scriptures for any reference at all to something like that? Wouldn't you? I would. I would. I'd be right down there, man, with like the, the preachers and the prophets. And I would be like, open up wherever it talks about, you know, God invading the world and his son. Right? And if you've got one that's halfway decent, he's going to be like, I think that's in Isaiah. And then you'd spend time reading. I would, right? The reason he responds in the way that he does is these two names. So what is it about these names that are so significant and compelling? And that's what I want to look at the rest of the way. First of all, why is his name Jesus? Why is that the name that the father chose for his own son, right? I mean, the angel tells Joseph, she'll bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But why that name? Why doesn't God choose something else? Why doesn't he choose, for instance, the name like Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord? Or why not name him Abraham? That's a pretty popular name, you know, in, in Hebrew tradition. Why not name him Zadok, which means righteousness, Although I admit, oh, how I love Zadok doesn't have a really great ring to it, right? Why not even Adam, though, seeing as how he is the second Adam? Redeem the name, right? Why Jesus? Why is that the name? It's Yeshua in Hebrew or Joshua in Greek. It's a common name. It's a common name, but the reasoning behind this name is what gives it uncommon significance. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Or as the angel put it, you're going to name him this, 
because he will save his people from their sins. I want us to think about that for a moment, that phrase. We're familiar with it. But I want us to really think about it for a second. First of all, I want you to know that that statement that the angel makes is emphatic. In other words, he's saying he and he alone will save his people from their sins. That's what he's saying. He and he alone. It's emphatic. It's extremely particular. The angel wants Joseph to know. He wants for us to know that Jesus and nobody else saves. You're going to name him Jesus because he's the only one that can possibly save his people. He's the only, his is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus saves. And you know what that does? That strikes a death blow to all of our idolatrous hopes, all of our idolatrous desires, all of our reliance upon anything else but Him in our lives for our standing with God. Amen? He's it. Nothing and no one else in human history has ever been attested to by an angel as the one who would save His people from their sins. In other words, all of our salvation resides in a person. That's the first thing that we need to understand that the angel is saying here. Our salvation resides in a person. Here's what that means. Here's what that means. It means that we can't look in an exclusive person, let me say. It resides in an exclusive person, Jesus. And that means this. We can't look to our parents for our salvation. Right? We can't look to some godly heritage that we may have had or not had growing up, right? If godly heritage saved you, I'd be lost. Because I had none. We can't look to ourselves, to anything that we can do. We can't look to anybody but Jesus alone. He's the only Savior, right? And moreover, the angel says very definitely that he will save his people from their sins. He will save. He will accomplish his people's salvation. He'll do it. He will accomplish it. He'll get it done. The salvation that that Jesus accomplishes for his people, in other words, is a definite and a fully accomplished work. Now, I want you to hear me when I say this. I want you to hear me when I say this because this is the difference between really understanding the work of Christ on the cross and being absolutely confused. Okay? Now I want to emphasize this. This is not a potential redemption that we're talking about here. Okay? It's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a potential redemption. In other words, Jesus did not come and die upon the cross to potentially secure salvation for some who may or may not at one point or another, hopefully in the future, believe. Are you hearing me? This is not a a hopeful kind of thing here at all. Jesus didn't die to make salvation an indefinite, uncertain, unsure, sketchy possibility for mankind. Well, you might say, you might not be just, I don't know, right? That's not it. He died to save for certain the people who belong to him from eternity. He actually accomplished the task. When he died, it was an actual death for actual sinners that were on his mind, okay, to actually save them. Jesus, you know, saves his people. A people who are set apart as his own treasure, as a a peculiar people, not perfect people, not self-righteous people, 
But chosen sinners who need a Savior, whom the Father gave Him before the foundation of the world. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't potential at all. It was actual. His death, His salvation that He won, it wasn't potential, it was actual. And it was for everyone whom the Father has given Him. When Jesus prayed in John 17, before going to the cross, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. When? In eternity. Those are those. Those are the ones who are graven on His hands. Those are the ones who are written on His heart. When Jesus Christ died, He purchased eternal life for those whom the Father gave Him. Not everybody. And not the potential for everybody. He actually saved somebody's. He saved his people. It's what theologians call limited atonement, or better, definite atonement, or particular redemption. Jesus saved. He gave life to those whose names were, Revelation 13, 8, written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. We're forever written in the Lamb's book of life. We're written upon Christ as the object of His love. And having been saved by Christ upon the tree, we can never be plucked out of the hands of God. Here's the deal, beloved. My only plea, your only plea before the throne of God is Jesus. But we need no other. My name, your name, Christian, is known and it's treasured by Him. Jesus, Yahweh saves His people. And he saves them from their sins. What a rich word that is. You know, save. It's a word that means to deliver or rescue or preserve or keep or protect or, or make secure. And when the angel says that he will save his people from their sins, what he's saying is this. He's saying that Jesus, yes, indeed, rescues his people from their sins, from the penalty of their sins, from the eternal punishment of hell by becoming our propitiation, right? By standing in our place and paying our debt. He saves us from the power and the dominion of sin in our daily lives, doesn't he? As by the work of the Holy Spirit, he he grows us in holiness and he makes us to strive against sin and he destroys the entanglement and the mastery of sin and he conforms us day by day more and more into his image, right? Right? He saves us from sin's guilt and he saves us from sin's power. That is so important for us to see. So important for us to see. There are a lot of people who have a deficient view of salvation. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. They have a deficient view of the work of Christ to save us. They say that, you know, yes, Jesus saves you, but some people are just left hopelessly entangled in sin and mastered by it. And they just can't get free. I want you to hear me when I say this. To believe in that kind of a Jesus who delivers you from God's wrath, yes, but leaves you hopelessly overpowered by sin in your life is to severely misunderstand and devalue the power of the blood of Jesus and His work of salvation. And that's at best. At worst, it's to not even know the true Christ of Scriptures at all. Because that's not Jesus. 
That's not the Jesus of the Word of God. You know, other would-be saviors, education, medicine, government, you know, social justice, great human leaders, they only mock the hopes and the needs of mankind, don't they? Don't they? They only mock it with their promises. You know why? Because they can never deliver from the power of sin. And they can never deliver from the consequences of, of sin. They can't deal with the real issue in us. That's why they can make promise after promise and none of them come to fruition. Because you can't educate man out of sin. You can't, you can't give him stuff and get him out of sin. You can't welfare a man out of sin. You can't change a man, get him out of sin. Only Christ can do it. He alone. You know what's remarkable is whenever we call the Son of God by His given name, Jesus, we are speaking the gospel in shorthand. Yahweh saves. Every time we plead the name of Jesus before the throne of the Father, we're bringing to Him His own word, His own promise in the person of His Son. Yahweh saves. You ever think about that? When you're pleading the blood of Jesus Christ, you're pleading exactly what God wants to hear. Charles Spurgeon rightly said, he rightly said this. He said, if he's anything, if he is anything, he is Jesus, the Savior. We know him best by that name. We preach unto men Jesus. We insist upon it, first and foremost, that he is the sinner's Savior. He is righteous and he loves righteousness, but he is first known to men as the friend of sinners. He is the faithful and true witness. The prince of the kings of the earth. But his first work is to save. After that he teaches and rules his saved ones. Sunken in sin, men need to be redeemed from that tremendous evil and the consequent wrath upon it. And this evil need is met, or this awful need is met by Jesus the Savior. What a wonderful thing to think upon. And then he goes on to say this. Gets even better. He says, the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, yet not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. Praise God. Not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. Oh, you sinners. And I mean real sinners, he says. Not you that call yourselves sinners because you're told you are such. But you who feel yourselves to be guilty before God. Here's good news for you. Oh, you self-condemned sinners who feel that if you ever get salvation, Jesus must bring it to you and be the beginning and the end of it. I pray you rejoice in this dear, this precious, this blessed name. For Jesus has come to save you, even you. Go to him as sinners. Call him Jesus. And cry, O Lord Jesus, be Jesus to me, for I need your salvation. Doubt not that he will fulfill his own name and exhibit his power in you. Only confess to him your sin and he will save you from it. Only believe in him and he will be your salvation. Amen. Jesus saves. And he saves Because his identity is nothing less than Emmanuel, God with us. I want you to think about that, that name. Nobody ever called Jesus Emmanuel as far as we know. Like it wasn't his nickname. 
They weren't out playing soccer or whatever you did in, you know, ancient Palestine. Like, oh, hey, there's Manny. You know, it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't his nickname. So what do the words of, of Matthew mean here? What do they mean? Why does he bring these up? Why does he throw this in there? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, the first thing that Matthew is doing here is telling us that the birth of the Lord Jesus is in reality the true fulfillment of the sign that was long ago given to the nation of Judah when it was under the rule of faithless, idolatrous Ahaz. A promise mentioned back in Isaiah 7 that God was present to rescue the nation even though Ahaz didn't want to acknowledge it. And that as proof of that, a young woman would conceive and bear a son as a sign that God would rescue Judah from her enemies at that time, which were northern Israel and Syria. Now, I'm not going to preach that sermon from Isaiah 7 all over again. You can hear that online. But what Matthew's getting at here is he's saying this. Yeah, that was fulfilled way back when, a little bit, not all the way. This time it's fulfilled all the way. This prophecy is being brought to full completion in Jesus himself. He's the true Emmanuel. He is, in fact, God with us. Not God against us. Not God here to destroy us as we deserve, but God with us. And that word with means a whole lot more than just being in the same room with somebody. That word that's translated as with is a word that means, you know, standing by someone or assisting somebody. It speaks of a firm bond, of a, of a close fellowship, of a unique closeness. J.I. Packer wrote these words. He said, God created us for friendship with himself. He created us to enjoy fellowship and communion with him. He wanted there to be genuine personal affection, friendship, and two-sided relationship between him and us, right? But there's a problem, wasn't there? And what was that? It was our sin. Our sin created a gulf between us and God, a gulf that only God could bridge and a gulf that he can bridge only in Emmanuel. Only in God taking on human flesh and becoming God with us. And that's why Matthew tells us that. He wants us to make sure that we know that there's, that this one born to Mary is no less than God in flesh. That's why he can save his people from their sins. He's the God who created all things, who upholds all things by the word of his power. He's not an angel. He's not a lesser deity. You know, he's not some human elevated to Godhood. He's God in the flesh and he's God with us. And praise God that he is because our salvation demands that it must be so. Salvation demands God with us. Salvation demands, our salvation, our reconciliation with God demands that God put on human flesh. That God put on human flesh in Jesus' incarnation. Here's why. Because the ones who need to be delivered, the ones who need to be saved, are men and women, are human beings, right? And the penalty for sin is not just against anything in general. The penalty of sin, God's wrath, is against whom? Sinners, right? Human beings. Not animals. Not trees. Not rocks. Human beings. 
And so for that reason, justice demands that the penalty of our sin either be satisfied by every single member of the human race forever in hell, every single one of us, or by one, by one who is unique, by a unique human being, by a sinless human being who is qualified to stand in the place of sinful mankind before the justice bar of God. To be born as a man who fully shared our humanity and who could take our place as our sinless representative, Jesus had to have a human parent, didn't he? He had to have a human mom. Not birthing parent, birthing person. What an insult that is to motherhood. Mom. And by the glorious work of the Holy Spirit in the virgin conception, Jesus was born as fully human and yet sinless. Although Mary herself was a sinner. I want you to think about that for a moment. What a miracle. A miracle that, that we can't even fathom that Jesus was formed in her womb yet kept from her sin. He inherited her humanity yet did not inherit her sin in any way. And he was born as us. Born like one of us. Completely innocent and holy. Our salvation demanded an incarnation because God's penalty is against human beings. And the representative to turn that penalty away must be himself human. But even more, our salvation demands the incarnation because the divine penalty against man for his sin requires that someone of infinite worth be able to satisfy God's wrath. Let me say that to you again. Our salvation demands God with us in Christ because the divine penalty against man for his sin requires that someone of infinite worth be put forward to pay the full penalty of our guilt, to pay God's wrath. See, sin against an infinitely holy God demands an infinite sacrifice for that sin, which is why no one gets out of hell once they're there. You never pay it off. It demands an infinite sacrifice. Mere man could not provide that sacrifice. Only God could. And only in the person of his glorious and perfect son. A finite man. Think about this now. A finite man cannot bear the load of human sin. Can he? Of of the sin of everyone who will ever believe. Can a finite man bear that sin, the weight of that sin? Of course not. He cannot satisfy God's infinite demand for justice. And moreover, a God cannot bleed, right? Gods don't bleed. But in Emmanuel, God with us, we have God's perfect and only solution, don't we? Our Redeemer has to be capable of dying. He has to be capable of shedding His blood since the penalty for sin is death and only by the shedding of blood is the remission of sins, right? Right? And He's got to be a man, who could stand in the gap and satisfy the demand of justice for all men and women who are to be saved. And yet, his blood has got to be of such value as to secure by his death 
pardon for everyone whom God would redeem. Where do you find a man like that? Emmanuel. God with us. He's the only one. As a sinless man, Jesus could represent the human race as sin bearer. Right? Second Adam. As the God-man. The sacrifice of His blood is of infinite worth before the face of God the Father. And so can pay our every debt. Take away the virgin conception and you no longer have God with us. You understand? People say like, you know, Rob Bell, who's a moron. Andy Stanley, who's a false teacher. And they'll say the virgin birth doesn't really matter. Man, just shut up and get out of the pulpit because you don't know what you're talking about. If you take away the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus Christ, you no longer have God with us. You know what you end up with? You end up with simply a mere mortal man with his own sin nature who can't save anybody, let alone himself. Our salvation requires God with us. In fact, I want us to think about this for a moment, beloved. Sin has defined the human's condition since when? Since the Garden of Eden, right? When our representative Adam fell prey to temptation and sin, and as the father of the human race, his sin condemned us all. It separated all of us from God the Creator. And by his sin, and let's just be honest, by our own, right? It's not like all Adam's fault. If you would have been in Adam's place, you'd have done the same thing. By our own sin, we are under the wrath of God. Who can deliver us from just judgment? Who can be the mediator between God, the three times holy God, and sinful man? There's only one person. It's the second Adam. The better, new and better representative. The man Christ Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. That's it. Beloved, God with us. Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel. Listen to me. That's the central truth of Christianity, is it not? Is it not? If God did not come near to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have no gospel. You you understand that? All Christian theology, the entirety of the gospel, all of our hope is built upon the fact that God became man, that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, that He was fully God and fully man, that He alone saved His people from their sins, His incarnation, His virgin conception, His His birth, His fully righteous life, His sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death, His resurrection, His ascension, His return. They are all fundamental and essential aspects of His gospel, and they all either stand or fall together. If you take away the virgin conception you might as well get rid of substitutionary atonement if you take away substitutionary atonement you might as well get rid of the resurrection if you take away the 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 righteousness of christ's life you might as well just kick the ascension out of the gospel it all stands and falls together and to reject any of this truth is to reject the gospel itself Our Lord became God with us. In a miracle of miracles, Christ became God with us. And He became God with us so He could be God for us. So that He could be God with us throughout time and eternity. 
But by his work of salvation, he has brought all of us who believe. He's brought all of us who believe in him to God. So that he could become God with us in a very real, personal sense. We're not make-believe. I said this last week. That we're not playing make-believe when, you know, we worship and we commune with him right now by his presence. He's with us. The prayers that we pray, the songs that we sing, the scriptures that we read and we, and we preach and by which he instructs and shapes and strengthens our souls and all of those things, we experience God with us. And not in some superstitious or imaginary way, but we enjoy his very real presence in a spiritual sense. He's with us, teaching us and guiding us and growing us, knitting our hearts to him and to one another, giving us gifts. He's God with us in an intimate and a personal way by the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ in us. Through every stage and situation of our lives. He's with us in joy and in hardship. He's with us in toil and trial and suffering or in comfort and when things are are well and good. He's with us in pain or in weakness. He's with us in grief or in health and happiness. He's with us when we're slandered for our faith in Christ or betrayed or when we're spoken well by our fellow believers and when our friends are loyal. He's with us when we're rich or poor. He's with us when we are slave or free. He is in all of it, God with us personally. He's with us when we sin. He's with us when we sin. Are you serious, brother? You're really saying that? I am. I am, and I hope you hear it because there are many of us who act as if God is unapproachable in the moment in which we sin. That somehow our justification is put on hold for a moment. You know? That, that we're not truly justified because we've just sinned and so therefore our justification is not full. Listen to me. Listen to me when I say this to you. Number one, Christ's death on the cross and His resurre- resurrection of the dead earned a perfect righteousness and a perfect justification for you. A forgiveness of your sins and a declaration that you are forever not guilty before the throne of God. If you truly believe in Christ, that's the fact. There is never a moment, never a moment when you are unjustified once you have been truly justified. You hearing me? What that means is when you sin, and you will, I'm not giving you an out, like saying, like, oh, preacher said I could sin. That's not what I'm saying. Don't any of you put that on Instagram. Don't anybody put on there, went to church today, Pastor Nick, hashtag, it's okay if you sin. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this. When you sin, and you will, it's not like God is unapproachable. He's not. He's with us. He convicts us. He's the one who brings conviction. He disciplines us. He hears our confession. He strengthens our souls to fight sin and to walk in godliness. He blesses our obedience. He, he, he makes us to experience, once again, the fullness of what it means to be cleansed. He rewards faithfulness. He gives us hope and grace that we desperately need. He makes us to see what is of eternal value and worth. He makes his life with us and God doesn't leave us. He's with us when we pass through death into his presence. Most remarkable thing I've ever seen is to watch a Christian die. It is a true honor to watch a Christian who has his faculties die. It's remarkable. I'm telling you right now, it is unlike anything else you've ever seen if you've been in a hospital with somebody that doesn't know Christ and dies. 
and he's God with us forever. The words of Revelation 21 promise, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He's with us. God is with us forevermore. And that thought ought to be the defining issue of our lives. If we're Christians, no matter what may come, if I, if I know my Lord Jesus as Savior personally, that He is God with us, if you know that, if we know that, that ought to give us comfort and confidence unlike anything else. God is not a man that He should lie. His promises are yes and amen. I want to close this morning with just one more quote from Charles Spurgeon. And I hope that it will serve as fuel for worship and delight in Christ, delight in Jesus, our Emmanuel. He said this. He said, our Savior is Christ. God. Yahweh. No testimony to His divinity could be plainer. It is indisputable. And what joy there is in this. For suppose an angel, this is great, suppose an angel had been our Savior. He would not have been able to bear the load of my sin or yours. Or if anything less than God had been set up as the ground of our salvation, it might have been found too frail a foundation. But if he who undertakes to save is none other than the infinite and the almighty then the load of our guilt can be carried upon such shoulders. The stupendous labor of our salvation can be achieved by such a worker, and that with ease. For all things are possible with God, and He is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by Him. You sons of man, perceive here the subject of your joy. The God who made you and against whom you have offended has come down from heaven, taken upon Himself your nature, that He might save you. He has come in the fullness of His glory and the infinity, infinity of His mercy that He might redeem you. Do you not welcome this news? Do you not welcome this news? Well, will not your hearts be thankful for this? Does, does this matchless love awaken no gratitude? Were it not for this divine Savior, your life here would have been wretchedness and your future existence would have been endless woe. Oh, I pray you adore the incarnate God and trust in Him. Then you will bless the Lord for delivering you from the wrath to come. And as you lay hold of Jesus and find salvation in His name, you will tune your songs to His praise and exult with sacred joy. Amen. Jesus, Emmanuel, He's the best gift of divine love. And he is himself the proof that God's love for his people will never shaken. It'll never weaken or waver or change. His enduring and his steadfast love is the strongest and the steadiest and the firmest and the, and the most solid and substantial, the most dependable thing in the whole universe to those who know him. Jesus saves his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he, as such, he is worthy of angelic choirs announcing his birth. He's worthy of the promises and the, and the prophecy and the forerunning of the prophets. He is worthy of preachers declaring his praise. And he's worthy of a church that exalts his name. So be a church that exalts his name. Amen? Amen?
That's who we celebrate as we come to this table this morning. That's who we celebrate. The one conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, God with us, who saves us from our sin. We celebrate His life, that He lived, that we could never live. We celebrate His death, that He died, that we should have. We celebrate His resurrection, that we share in. And we celebrate His soon coming again to take us to glory. Praise God, even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's come to this table with joy and with thanksgiving. With full knowledge of all that Christ has done. God with us. God for us. God with us forever. Amen. Let's pray. Fathers, we think about these truths this morning. There are really only two appropriate responses. Really. I mean, the first one, Lord God, is belief. It's faith. It's to turn away from sin. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The God in flesh. The one who died and 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 rose again from the dead to save sinners. And Lord God, I pray that for those that are in this room this morning that have never come to a true faith in Christ, that that would be indeed what would take place right now. That, Father, they would hear these words, these words of promise and of hope, the truth, the declaration that His name is Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. He's done that. And He can save us from our sins because He is Emmanuel, God with us. So I pray, Lord God, for those that are here this morning that have not come to faith in Christ, that, Lord God, you'd bring them to faith right now. And then the second appropriate response is that of worship in whatever manner it's, it's, it's it, it, an expression it takes, whether it's in humility and awe, whether it is in vocal adoration, whether it is in just humble submission and, and, and Father, the desire to be a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus, whatever it is, the two appropriate responses this morning are faith and worship, belief and adoration. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would bring those responses to this congregation right now. As they, as we meet, think and meet on, as we meditate on these words, Lord God, do a work in us. Do a grand work in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.